0: Welcome to OECD Podcasts, where policy meets people. What do you do? It's a common question in casual conversation, one we've probably all asked or answered many times. But when was the last time you were really surprised by the response, taken aback or intrigued by someone's job? Probably not that often. But in a world where nearly half of all jobs risk being automated or having their tasks radically reshaped by technology, this all may be about to change. I'm Kate Lancaster. To learn more about the jobs of the future, I'm speaking today with Ben Pring, co-founder and leader of Cognizant's Center for the Future of Work, and author of What to Do When Machines Do Everything. Welcome, Ben, and thank you for being with us.
1: Great to be here, Kate. Thank you.
0: Well, let's jump right in. Last year, Cognizant released a report, 21 Jobs for the Future. And this year, you're back with 21 more jobs for the future. So what I want to know is, how did you choose them? Are these jobs you imagined, dreamed up, or ones you identified out there in the wild, so to speak?
1: Yeah, a combination of all of the above, really. We sort of look at all the big trends in the marketplace. We uh, study what's going on with technology, what's going on in politics, in demographical issues, cultural issues, put them all into a big stew, trying to look at them from every angle, trying to think about which ones have you know, legs, which ones are going to be with us for a while, which ones are perhaps passing phenomena. And we've all been doing this a long time. We kind of try and come up with things that we think are solid, things that are uh, you know, on the borderline between our imagination, a little bit of kind of science fiction, but the reality of what's going on in the world today. So we started with a long list. We probably had about 200 ideas ah. and we whittle it down and we sort of argue about it and we drink a lot of coffee and <laughs> and uh, eventually we come up with these ones that we think are, are the ones we want to talk about.
0: So how close are they to reality then?
1: Well, we tried to structure the reports, both reports on a timeline for okay. the next 10 years. So some of them are very real now. Some of them are probably not going to be real for you know five, six, seven, eight, nine years time. Uh, so I think that's the way to look at it. You know, The future is always in the future, but the future is coming closer and closer. Mm,
0: it's a, high, a horizon that's both advancing and approaching that's at the right. same time. Yes,
1: exactly. So some of the jobs, I mean, uh, one that's uh, very top of mind at the moment is in the cyber security world. Um, you know, governments and big organizations have historically played defense in terms of their cyber security posture. We think that's changing now, and uh, governments around the world are becoming much more aggressive and becoming more proactive in their stance towards cyber. And so one of the jobs of the future is a cyber attack agent. Is that think,
0: someone who's making attacks or yes, defending attacks? Yes, somebody who's making attacks. Someone who's making yeah. attacks.
1: historically, big countries like the UK, France, the US have basically been in defend mode. Mm. They're trying to repel cyber attacks from outside. But because those things are so prevalent now and so pervasive, there's sort of been a zeitgeist change, a gestalt, where Mm. we're going on the front foot now rather than always playing defense.
0: So this is a job that's near-term possibly starting right now. But, you know, you did a report last year. You did a report this year. Yeah. Have, have any of last year's jobs already come true, so to speak?
1: Yes, they have. It's funny. Um, one of the jobs we wrote about last year was called a uh, financial wellness coach. And it was this idea that, uh, you know, we all kind of waste a lot of money between multiple bank accounts and credit cards and subscriptions that we have. Nobody really kind of thinks about that in a holistic way. What if you had a coach, a person who had access to your kind of financial profile, who could aggregate all of that data into a dashboard on a, on a phone or on a laptop, but then help you think about well, you're wasting money here. So there wasn't anything really like that when we started writing about it, but then MetLife in the US, one of the big uh, financial institutions, they've instituted exactly that type of person, exactly that type of role. So yeah, the imagination is becoming real in front of our very eyes. The
0: future is now. Yeah. So how future-proof are these jobs at the same time? If technology is changing so rapidly and what needs are changing so rapidly, how do we know that the jobs of the future aren't already becoming the jobs of the past? Well,
1: yeah, that's a very good question. I'm, I'm not somebody that ever says anything is future-proofable. Mm. Technology is changing so quickly. Nothing is future-proofable now. And I think this is one of the realities of the mm-hmm. modern world that we're going to have to deal with. That you know, in the old model, you'd go to college, you'd get a degree in something and basically then try and monetize that for 40 years, a career. That model's withering on the vine now. And I think we've got to accept as the new paradigm that we're going to do something for 10 years, and then perhaps we have to do something else for 10 years. And it's this idea that, again, you go to college for four years at the beginning of your career, your adult life, if you like. What if we went to college for one year, then worked for 10 years, then at 30 went for another year to refresh our skills or perhaps change course because technology's changed what you can do, again again at 40, again at 50?
0: The jobs in the report are very tech-oriented, a lot of them, are certainly reflecting the way the world is changing. And yet we know that six out of 10 adults in OECD countries lack basic ICT skills or lack hands-on everyday yeah. comfort with using a computer. They lack that kind of yeah. ITC experience.
1: Yeah. It's going to be very, very hard to think of a job in the future that doesn't use technology in some way. So I think that behooves us again as, as parents, as educators, as, as leaders of different kind of businesses and, and non-commercial organizations to continue to orientate people towards having some sort of of digital literacy, some comfort level with this, I think it's probably people who are maybe in their mid-40s through to their mid-30s who kind of use tech but not very much. They're the people we need to help a little bit more aggressively in terms of saying, look, you can get involved in this. You know, you can go on to free online uh, tools. Mm -hmm. Anybody can kind of on the weekend or an evening look at this stuff, begin to get onto that ladder.
0: Yeah, so it's a matter of both providing resources, whether it's, as you say, through online platforms or through an employer or through even public sector initiatives, but also encouraging a culture where everyone, it's it's normal to be a lifelong learner. Yes, exactly. And
1: I think that's happening naturally Mm. in a way sometimes that people perhaps higher up the ladder, older people don't see. It is, there's a groundswell of that happening. Um, I mean, look at, think about it in the creative industries. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, if you wanted to make a record, a demo tape, if you were a musician you'd go into a recording studio it would cost you $5000 all your pocket money you'd saved up for years you would go into the recording studio make a demo and then try and you know get a, a record label to you know sign you up nowadays On GarageBand, on a phone, you've got all of that capability on your phone for free. And I think you can think about that happening in business, in in other cultural aspects as well. Kids have got these incredible new tools, the means of production, literally in their hands
0: now. In their pocket. In their pocket,
1: yeah, literally in the palm of their hands. And I think there's going to be an explosion of creativity and explosion of business opportunity around that. Again, it's going to look very different. Mm. The supply and demand side economics of that are very different from the traditional model that we've been you know, comfortable with for the last 30, 40 years. But again, that's why I'm not so gloomy as some people mm. are because I think a lot of seeds are blooming all around the world if you're looking.
0: What about soft skills? Yeah. I'm an optimist as well, and I think there are many things that, that machines cannot do that we can, and soft skills is one of them. So No,
1: I, I completely agree with you, and that thought is very much integrated into the, the reports that we've done and all the analysis that we've done. Um, no, I mean, arguably, the route to beating the robots is being a better human being. Yeah. If the robots are going to do the automatable kind of routine boring stuff, then it's going to be the human interaction it's going to be the human interface it's going to be humans wanting to work with other humans and in fact, if you look i mean it sounds silly, but if you look look at the leading edge of retail uh in America in the u k other parts of the world, there's this phenomenon called the unstore and it's kind of inverting the notion that's happened in big retail. Again, for the last generation or so, where you know, the big retailers are trying to make everything more efficient, they're trying to squeeze people out of the equation, have self-service, have these big kind of uh, warehouses, but people go into the store to have a human experience. I want to talk to a cool person who knows how to do this thing or can help me and, and inspire me to do this. And so that human interface is actually really, really important. Just as one example, you go into a, a big box retail store nowadays, You know, certainly in America where I live, A, it's very hard to find anybody working on the floor Mm. if you've got a question. This happens
0: in France too. Yeah,
1: yeah. So where's the toothpaste? There's nobody there to ask. And then when you do find somebody, it's some person who, you know, without being unpleasant about it, is not a very good human being. And they're not, you know. Or
0: perhaps we can say it does not have the social skills for the job. That's right, yeah. Yeah,
1: well, that's what I mean. I mean, we want people who are good human beings in the sense of being able to be a part of the society that that we want, mm-hmm. and so I think that's very important. It, it may sound trivial to some people, but again, I think in, in an era of efficiency and of cutting cost, we've sort of got ourselves in a downward cycle, and I think the way to get out of that cycle is to recognize that a lot of the, the opportunity in the future is going to be with the human being.
0: That it's not just about technology replacing the person because it can, because it does the dangerous job or it does the heavy lifting, but that technology and human beings work together because if not, as you say, you end up with a, a soulless space. And Yeah,
1: and I don't think anybody really wants that. And no, I think, again, I if think you so look either. at the leading edge of, of technology development and you look at the leading practitioners of this, one example would be at Stanford in, in Silicon Valley in, in America. They've just set up a new um, facility there called the Center Human Centered AI. Mm. And it's very much driven by people, you know, the leading edge developers of this technology who themselves are saying, look, time out we've got to think about this in a more holistic, human-centered way. When people talk about the fourth industrial revolution, Revolution. if you look at historically the the industrial revolutions and then the coincidence of real revolution, there's a complete causal match. So I think in a way when people talk about the fourth industrial revolution and this need to bring people along and to keep things human-centered, what they're really saying is we want the first First, industrial evolution.
0: And that brings me to another question. There are ways in which technology has changed how we find work, how we do work, how we develop work relationships. And, for example, now we know in OECD countries, one in seven workers is self-employed. A growing number of these workers are in what we call the gray zone. So they may be independent contractors or gig workers, but they only have one main client. So in many respects, they are very similar to an employee, but without the access to benefits, social protections that the traditional jobs used to have. So how do we grapple with this?
1: Very big question. It's a very kind of um, mind-blowing question in a way. And, of course, um, uh, everything you point to is far worse in America than it is in, in Europe The sort of European social net which doesn't exist in America makes the situation there even more precarious. I mean, there are, just as an aside, again, very intelligent, very well-positioned people in academia and elsewhere who are thinking exactly about that, about, in, in essence, trying to create a new social contract for the social network age. I think that's work in progress is going to take a long time. Ultimately, the answer it boils down to two things, legislation, regulation, so i.e. political control. Mm. The other control mechanism a society has to right itself, if you like, is the power of your purse. We individually all have the power of our purse. And so ultimately, I think if you feel uncomfortable with you know, the Uber-style platform model, we'll take a taxi. I mean, I was sitting outside a cafe yesterday afternoon here in Paris, and the the taxi drivers were all striking. striking and honking their horns, driving down the road. And that that is literally the future of work being played out in front of consumers mm. like us. And and I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I took an Uber home, so <laughs> it's a it's a tough one because I'm <laughs> I'm sympathetic to those taxi drivers. They're fighting for their future, but uh, you know, the Uber is easier for me. So. Mm. It's a very, very complicated issue, and I think it'll take generations to really play that out.
0: And as you say, one where engagement happens on so many different levels in the public policy sphere, but also at the level of every individual person, each consumer.
1: Yes. Every time you make a purchasing decision, you are expressing some form of your own response to all of these discussions. And, and you know, unfortunately or not, the truth is we all know that it would be hypocritical of us to say, I don't want to spend less money. Mm. And we, we all do want to get things cheaper and cheaper but, you know, in the macroeconomic sense, you know what ultimately that sort of does.
0: Well, it's been fantastic talking to you. And <laughs> Great, I could nice talk all afternoon. But before before we say goodbye, I have one last question for yeah, you. Yeah. A question we've been asking many people over the past six months as part of our I Am The Future Of Work campaign at the OECD. And it's very simple. What is your hope for the future of work?
1: My hope for the future of work is that we create better work. Uh, I think a lot of people are have what I call a pre-nostalgia for work that's going away. And we know that a lot of work that people do today is is awful work, terrible work. If you're on a checkout counter, if you're doing telesales trying to sell cruise ships, if you're in a factory floor, if you're in a mine, a lot of that work is terrible, terrible work, soulless, um, soul-destroying work. There's an uh, economist at the London School of Economics called David Graeber, who if people uh, haven't come across, they should definitely uh, look him up. He's a very interesting uh, writer. He talks about bullshit jobs, that lots and lots of people, bourgeois, white-collar, middle-class people do bullshit jobs. Those jobs could be automated away and give us the platform and the opportunity and the space to create better work. I think that's the great opportunity ahead of us. That's what excites me, is creating better work, spreading that round more broadly, allowing people to do more interesting, more creative, more fun, more engaging, uh, more meaningful work. That's really, I think, ultimately the opportunity
0: ahead of us. Ben, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking with you. I'm Kate Lancaster. Thank you for listening to OECD Podcasts. You'll find much more about the issues we've been discussing today at oecd.org, as well as at www.cognizant.com. To add your voice to the OECD I Am The Future Of Work campaign, go to oe.cd slash fow.